Welcome to the Compass Christian Church Weekly Sermon Podcast. For more information, visit us at compasslu.org. Well, good morning. We're uh, back in Ephesians. We're heading into Ephesians chapter 5 this morning, and I've titled this one, Walking in Love and Light. And as many of us know, we've been walking uh, our way through Ephesians slowly, taking the time to read this book with a fresh perspective. And today we're going to keep keep building on all the things we've been building on. And last week, our brother Jerry exhorted us to no longer live like we did before Christ. And he showed us how we can live in a way that shows other people the kingdom in advance of it being fully here. He called it kingdom living. And when we live this way, when we put on the new humanity... It is a vivid example of God's goodness and his grace to those around us. And so I just want to point out here that um, I really feel like his his sermon last week is incredibly foundational for us going forward in the rest of the book. So if you are uh, coming across this sermon online in the coming uh, weeks, months, and years, I would encourage you, if you haven't already, to go back and listen to Jerry's sermon from last week first. And if you're here in the room with me and you didn't hear Jerry's sermon last week, well, I'm sorry, there's nothing I can do about that. (laughs) You're stuck with the short highlights that I'll be dropping throughout the sermon today. Um, Now, I want to also add here at the beginning that we're going to be discussing some things, uh, specifically some sins this morning, uh, that are a little bit more of an adult nature. And so um, I'm not going to be going into a lot of detail Uh, But I'm also going to be throwing around some words that you may not want to have to define to your, like, seven-year-old, like I have a seven-year-old, or you're almost, I have almost five-year-old. Like, I wouldn't want them in the room listening to some of these words necessarily. So I want to consider this sermon rated PG instead of G. Like I said, I'm not going to go into a lot of detail, but I will be throwing out some terminology that you probably don't want little ones to hear. Before we tackle our question for today, I want to bring back our four themes that we've been looking at. Uh, The first one is that the book of Ephesians or the letter of Ephesians was written to a group of people halfway around the world 2,000 years ago, and it was a very community-oriented culture and time, not individualistic like our modern Western society. So we've been reading every you as y'all, the plural, the southern plural. Um, And then the second thing here is that we've seen new creation and new order things in Jesus. Uh, that apocalypse, that revelation, that encounter with Jesus that just changes your life, shows you the truth clearly. Um, So we're going to continue looking at that. And then the last two things are how we've seen unity in Christ, God's plan for unity in Christ to unite everything in heaven and on earth to him. And of course, we saw that specifically with the Jews and the Gentiles being related together. And then the last thing is division and battle with the powers of the world. So when we see uh, darkness in the world, when we see division, when we see sin, when we see all these evil things that tend to division, we know that the powers of the world are at work, and we're going to look at those, some of those things today. So our question for today is, how do we walk in love and light? So I want to begin by reading our section for the week, which is Ephesians chapter 5, verses 1 through 14. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. And walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among y'all as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, 
but instead let there be thanksgiving. For y'all may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, who is, or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive y'all with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore do not be part, become partners with them. For at one time y'all were darkness, but now y'all are light in the Lord, walk as children of light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. So there's our passage for the week. And as Jerry said last week, it isn't always easy to hear the confrontational parts of Scripture, especially if we've dealt with these particular issues um, or are still dealing with those particular issues. Um, and then last week, you know, we spent most of the time talking about our speech. We talked about our language, how we talk to each other. That thread's going to continue, but we're going to add a couple of things to the list as we've read through them. But before we consider these items specifically, let's endeavor to keep something in mind. What we're talking about this morning is not like a roadmap to being a good person. It's not about uh, being a good person. This is not morality for morality's sake. Um, instead, what Paul is describing for us is what it looks like to be changed by the good news of Jesus. So what does someone look like who's had an apocalypse? They've had a revelation of Jesus. How are they now to live in the world? Um, this is a description of what new creation life looks like. This is what we're talking about last week with kingdom living. And I think there's also an element of this where, as Jerry pointed out last week, if we live this way, that's how you maintain unity. We're going to talk about specific things today that, that destroy families, that destroy communities very quickly if they're allowed into the community. And so there's a lot of ways to look at this, but this is not just about being a good person. <laughs> That's not what it's about. It's about what does this new humanity, how does this new humanity live? And when we see this as our calling, as something that we've been called and enabled to do, I think that changes the perspective. Instead of me being like, oh, I'm going to be a good little boy. It's like, no, God's called me to be a beacon of his new humanity. And therefore, I'm going to live up to that standard. So let's go back to the first two verses here. Ephesians 5, 1 and 2. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So before we get into the negative side in this passage, we get the positive side. We get the exhortation to be imitators of God. Now, I think the first question we have to ask ourselves is, in what way can we imitate God? Can I imitate God's power? No. <laughs> can I uh, be present everywhere like God is present everywhere? No. Uh, so then how can I imitate God? And this is where I think it's unfortunate that we have chapter divisions sometimes. Now we, I think it's helpful. We need them. It helps us to know where we are in the book and stuff. But 
if we were in, in that synagogue or, or meeting place in that home 2,000 years ago when the letter to the Ephesians was being read to the people in the communities around Ephesus, the last thing that they would have just heard would have been what we call chapter 4, verse 32, which is be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. So how are we supposed to f- imitate God? by being kind and tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as Christ also forgave you. So there is a specific way to imitate God that's in mind here. It's his forgiveness and his mercy. We've been talking about throughout the letter to the Ephesians how Paul has this uh, story of Scripture in mind. And throughout Scripture, what we see is God relentlessly loving his enemies. And his enemies are us. (laughs) His enemies are even the Jewish people that he called in the Old Testament. Uh, His enemies are humanity. And so he made a way to reconcile humanity with himself through Christ. So we can imitate God in our ability to love our enemies, to bless our enemies, to forgive, to extend grace and mercy even when they are not deserved. And I want to mention here too that this is not an easy process, especially for those of us who aren't God which I think, show of hands, how many of you are not God out there? Okay, good. I think we all got that right. So it's not easy. It's not an instantaneous process. Um, I've been through things personally that took me years to fully forgive the people involved. Um, And so some of us, I want to encourage you that some of us um, may be dealing with things where we want to imitate God in this way, and we're having a hard time. And I want to say that I get that And if I get that, I know that God gets that too. So I think that's the main way we can imitate God. But our good friend Lynn Kohick had another broader way of looking at this too. And I wanted to share this as well. She says, quote, The exhortation to follow God's example is found only here in the entire Bible. Although we have Paul calling on the Corinthians to imitate himself as he imitates Christ and to imitate other believers. The notion of an object imitating another object or a person imitating another person or a god was common within the wider Greco-Roman world, but the notion of imitating God rarely appeared in Second Temple Judaism. The emphasis instead was on obeying God and on living a holy life as a result of such obedience. Yet if we press beyond a narrow understanding of imitation, we find that the creation narrative in Genesis invites humans to imitate God in their acts of working, resting, creating, and ruling. Paul indicates to the Ephesians that God has created good works for them to do, chapter 2, verse 10, and has seated them with Christ above, who rules in the heavenly places, chapter 2, verse 6, end quote. So what Lynn Coick is pointing out is that God's original plan for humanity, again, this is the whole story that Paul has in the back of his mind as he's writing this letter to the Ephesians. This is the whole narrative of Scripture. When we go back to the very beginning in Genesis, God has a high calling for humanity that was absolutely unique in the context of the ancient world. And in those ways, we can imitate God too. He's given us dominion. He expects us to make good decisions with that dominion, right? And we're going to see that when the kingdom comes too. We're going to see that he's going to give us, it's going to, he calls, the Bible calls us at places kings, kings and queens. And that's what, what we will be. So we will be ruling in some sense again under the authority of Christ and under the authority of the Father. And so we can imagine if we look at our lives as we're pre-kings and pre-queens, right? We're, we're training for this eternal responsibility that we're going to have. Then what does that look like from an ethics perspective in our lives? 
how, what kind of a standard do we hold ourselves to? I mean, if I'm, if I'm just like a pauper in the kingdom and nobody cares and nobody's looking, I can get away with a lot of different stuff, right? But if I'm walking down the street, I've got, you know, I'm the prince and I've got the signet ring of my father on my hand and I've got the robe around me. People know who I am. They know who I stand for. Then if I do something that's bad, then what does that make the kingdom look like? Terrible, doesn't it? So that's, that's the picture we have in mind here about imitating God. So that's how we get our motivation. Verse 2 continues our positive admonition. We are to walk in love as Christ loved us. And, uh, you know, there's a couple things I think about here. The first one is uh, when I think about passages where it talks about our motto, following Jesus together, this is one of the ones that comes to mind. Following Jesus together, walk in love as Christ loved us. We're to literally imitate our Lord here. But here it's talking about uh, relentlessly practicing love. And so what does that mean? What does walking in love mean? Well, I wanted to sort of break it down a little, simplify it a little bit, because love can be sort of a fuzzy term for us. And I did the silly pastor thing where I have this uh, acronym, uh, PUSH, PUSH for uh, love. And so here's what I've defined love as. Maybe this will help you remember a couple things about love. This is certainly not exhaustive about everything we can say about love. But when you think about what the Bible says about love, it's patient. Patient, we're not going to get it right the first time every time, and neither are the people around us. So love is patient. Uh, Love is unconditional. Uh, We don't just love our family and friends. We love our enemies. We love those who persecute us. We love those uh, who abuse us. Um, It is selfless or self-sacrificial, two ways of looking at that. Uh, We consider others as highly as we consider ourselves. And then to make it a word, I had to use a word like hardy, okay? So I know it's corny, but uh, hopefully you remember this. Hardy, it perseveres and it doesn't give up at the first sign of a struggle. So here are just some attributes of the love that Christ exhibited for us and the love that we can exhibit for other people. So if you think about love, you think about push. Push yourself to love. Don't push others. (laughs) So let's keep reading here. Chapter 5, verses 3 through 6. But, we get to the negative side here, but sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among y'all as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For y'all may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive y'all with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. So Paul here in verses 3 and in verse 5, he lists the same list twice. There are three sins, major sets of sins that Paul is concerned about in this particular passage. The first one is sexual immorality. The second one is moral impurity. And the third one is covetousness. Most scholars sort of tie the first two together, and then they sort of put covetousness in its own category. And so I have um, a couple brief definitions for you here. Sexual immorality, the word that's used there, the Greek word that's used there, it was sort of like a grab bag for all these different things. So Paul, by, by using one Greek word, can sort of point to 
uh, five or ten different things that he doesn't want people to do. And so certainly this would have included adultery, which, you know, we, we use the term adultery, we mean one thing. The Bible also would include premarital sex in that. Premarital sex, uh, prostitution would be involved in that. Certainly in the ancient world, prostitution was a big problem, and it's possibly less of a problem today in some circles, but still an issue. And then pornography. They had pornography back then. Of course, it's rampant today. So, and I'm not listing everything <laughs> that would fit under this, okay? I'm just giving you some examples. Now, moral impurity is probably an add-on to that sexual immorality grouping. So, um, so, so Paul is interested in the act. He's interested in how it makes us. It makes us impure. So he's sort of highlighting the action and the sort of the result of the action. Then covetousness, which seems to us like way out in left field when we're talking about the other two things. Like we don't necessarily think about covetousness in the same context. Uh, co- some people did tie covetousness in with the other two because it can be like, you know, uh, in the original Ten Commandments, it says don't covet your neighbor's wife. It was one of those things that was listed specifically in the commandment. So maybe that's in Paul's mind. Maybe he's just sort of all in on the sexual immorality uh, line, but it's also possible that he means just greed and trusting wealth rather than God more generally, and so I think that's probably the better way of reading it. But the point that I think we should make here, and the point that Paul makes here in verse 5, is all three of these have a common thread, and that common thread is idolatry. It's idolatry. It's, it's not understanding that God's boundaries Uh, to keep the unity in our families, to keep the unity in our communities, that these boundaries that he set up are for our good. And so when we do these types of things, when we trust in our money instead of God for our sufficiency, uh, when we step outside of our marriages and step outside of our families and try to be selfish and taking care of whatever things that we think we need to take care of, um, that is putting something else above God. All those things are putting something else above God. It's all idolatry. So again, verse 3 names these three things that God wants us to avoid. And he wants us to avoid them so much that Paul uses this language that they're not even to be named among y'all. Now, of course, this is hyperbole because in the rest of the passage, we're going to talk about what light does when there's darkness around. And it means talking about it. So if something is going on, Paul's not saying you should hush, hush, don't talk about it, not even to be named among you. He's just saying it emphatically that you should not be doing that. So we are to shine the light into the darkness no matter where it is. Now verse 4 says, it uses these words, filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking. And I think this is a fascinating thing that Paul points out here. Because what he's saying is we should not even make jokes about uh, sexual immorality, about impurity, about greed. Or really, I think the whole greater context is about anything that's idolatrous. Because God has given us all the things that we enjoy in this life to enjoy in their proper context. And as Jerry said last week, and I want to point out here again, there is a proper context for sex. There is a proper context for taking care of your family and for planning for the future. There is a proper context for anger. So what Paul says here in verse 4 is that we are to offer thanksgiving to God for the goodness that he gives us instead of using our mouths to make fun of the ways in which his good things are perverted. And I think that's a hard message for us to hear today. Um, it's a challenging word for me too, um, because there's something about our old humanity. There's something about 
the way that we just naturally are in this world um, that I think enjoys that kind of joking. Um, Clinton Arnold said it this way in the Zondervan Illustrated Biblical Backgrounds Commentary. He says, television talk shows, sitcoms, and call on radio have majored in the kind of coarse humor that Paul cautions us to avoid. Our old selves are drawn to this form of entertainment, but it is destructive to our souls. So imagine what you have here is you have God giving us these good things to be enjoyed in their proper context. And you have the people of God, along with everyone else in the world, making fun of what happens when these things are perverted. And Paul's saying we shouldn't be doing that. I think there's obvious reasons why we shouldn't be doing that. And like I said, that's, that's not an easy word for me today to hear either. In verses 5 and 6, I want to reread them. Verse 5 says, For y'all may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive y'all with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. So verse 5 repeats the list from verse 3, and then it adds that the people that habitually live that way they have no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. And I think we have to be careful about this language. I think there's a ditch on both sides of the road here. So we're going to talk about both ditches, and then we're going to talk about what I think the road looks like on it. So one way of looking at this I think is ultimately incorrect is to take inheritance here to refer to rewards. So when I talk, you know, some people think that when it talks about inheritance here that we're talking about uh, it's not talking about salvation, but rather it's talking about rewards. So what's my problem with taking it that way? Well, I think the language that's being used here is defined for us in Matthew 25. In Matthew 25, Jesus defines inheriting the kingdom as entering into the kingdom at the final judgment. And so on one side of the road, I don't think that this is talking about rewards. Now, on the opposite side of the road, because there is an opposite side, there's another ditch on the other side of the road, I think it's unhelpful to look at God like he's vengeful and he's waiting us for us to fail at any moment so that he can disqualify us from our inheritance. Uh, Lynn Kohick makes an excellent point, um, and it's too long for me to quote in its totality, but in essence, what she points out that God, especially in this context where we just read verses 1 and 2, God is understand, understood, should be understood as fully love. And she points out that the pagan gods, the gods that they would have been surrounded with in that culture at that time, were the ones that were given to fits of rage. But when we see God displaying his wrath, especially as it's portrayed in the Old Testament, it's against the wicked people in the society, especially the ones who exploit the poor and the ones who mock God's commandments to take care of those less fortunate in the community. And so she finally points out that sin should make us angry. It should make us angry, especially when it results in harm to the innocent. So I wanted to give an example that probably would help you understand what I think the word wrath means in this context. And you can show hands if you want to. If you just want to you know, abstain, you can abstain. But I think everyone in the room is going to answer this question the same way. How many of us are angry about human trafficking? Right? We're angry about human trafficking. Because we see it as completely evil, 
because there are people who are being abused, people who will never be the same because of what's going on, right? And I think we can reasonably say that those who are committing these atrocious acts are idolaters. They are not living the new creation reality. They are walking in darkness, and they're not walking in light. So when we understand that wrath is being used here, not in a way where it's like God is like, he's got the hammer in the sky, and he's like waiting for you just to step just a little outside, and he wants to whack you with that hammer or something like that. When we understand that there is a natural consequence for sin, that there is, um, there is a sense in which all sin should make us all angry, especially when it's being targeted against people that cannot protect themselves. Uh, there is, I think, a balanced way to understand what Paul is saying here. And Tim Mackey, I think, said it well when he said this. I'm going to quote him. He said what, what Paul is saying in verse 5 here, quote, You're going to miss out on what you're made for. You're a glorious image of God meant for ruling and responsibility and healthy relationships. And if you dead set yourself on a subhuman kind of behavior, you aren't capable of inheriting what God wants to give you, end quote. So what, what Tim is saying, what, what Paul is saying here is, is that God has this high view of what humanity can be. God has this vision for what humanity can be. And if you relentlessly follow after the things that turn you into a subhuman, where you are treating other people, you're abusing other people, you're taking advantage of other people, like the people who commit uh, you know, human trafficking, those types of people that do that kind, those kinds of things, that is treating people as less than human. And if you treat people as less than human, then is God going to let you rule in his kingdom in eternity? No. You're just, it's just not, it's not compatible. It's not compatible. So God has this image for what human, for what the new creation looks like, and you're disqualifying yourself because you're not doing that. So I hope that helps understand the wrath of God there and how it fits with the inheritance and all those things. And I think that Paul's mostly talking about outsiders here. I mean, he's warning the church, but he's mainly talking about outsiders there, I believe. Verse 7, let's read the rest of this passage here. Therefore, do not become partners with them. That's why I think he's talking about outsiders, because he's saying to the insiders, don't become partners with them. Verse 8, for at one time y'all were darkness, just like they are, but now y'all are light in the Lord, walk as children of light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true, and try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible, for anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore, it says, awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. So the last uh, half of this passage is an extended analogy using light and darkness. And again, the repeated point that Paul makes is that we are to be uh, the people of light. So Paul says, it literally, he says, y'all are light in the Lord. He's like, he, he doesn't just say you are the people of light. He says, y'all are light. Y'all are light. So if we have been turned from darkness to light, then how should we walk? We should walk as children of light. Or as 1 John 1 says, we should walk in the light. So let's compare darkness versus light. Um, so on one side of the conversation, we have sexual morality, we have impurity, we have covetousness. Now, against that, Paul lists three things here. He lists goodness, righteousness, and truth. Uh, goodness is 
uh, positive moral quality characterized especially by interest in the welfare of others. That's what the BDAG uh, definition is. So goodness means we care about the interests of others, not so much the interests of ourselves. So that seems to me to be the direct opposite of greed or covetousness, where it's like me, 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 I want to grab all these things for myself. Goodness is the opposite of that. Righteousness is doing the right thing, seeking justice, obedience. And Lynn Kohick says it, quote, includes both the idea of personal integrity and of community justice and fairness, end quote. So I think, you know, righteousness and impurity are sort of opposite each other in some way. And then truth is being, know, is being or knowing in accordance with reality. So instead of taking advantage of others or treating them as less than human, we are to treat others with compassion, with love. We are to treat them as they really are people created in the image of God. And so that's just a little bit about the fruit of the light being good and right and true versus against the, the sins that Paul mentioned earlier. Then verses 11 through 14a discuss something that's incredibly important. What do we do when we come across darkness? Uh, the outsiders are referenced as doing things in secret that is shameful even to speak of. But the question we have to ask ourselves is, are we supposed to keep quiet? Does he mean that we're supposed to keep quiet when we see the works of darkness in the world? No. He's saying that it's embarrassing even to talk about it, but if it's happening in our communities, uh, especially in our faith communities, and if it's happening in the world around us and we see it going on, we have to be the people of light. We have to be truth tellers. We have to expose the works of darkness. We are called to bring to light uh, any situation that we are in. And I know that I've been in environments where people were told to keep quiet when they saw darkness. Um, and I think that that's really unfortunate that people were given that advice. Uh, it's not healthy to hide darkness. It's not godly to hide darkness. Um, people frequently will give that advice, or at least in my experience have given me that advice, by saying, oh, we don't want to disturb the unity we have by showing that so-and-so has a problem here or so-and-so has a problem there. And I think it especially affects people who protect pastors. So pastor does something bad. Um, and then people find out about it, and they're like, no, 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 he's got a great ministry, he's got a great audience, like, he's leading people to Christ, like, you can't, you can't do that, you can't bring this to light, you can't talk about it, we have to just shut it down right here, right, th right now. And I'm here to tell you that if that ever happens to me, or any other leader at Compass, you better be telling the authorities, you better be telling uh, the people in the church, you better be they're exposing this thing, because that is, that is not uh, true unity. I call that a fake unity. Uh, because any, any unity that is propped up by keeping secrets and especially hiding sin, is not, that is not unity. And the letter to the Ephesians, what we've seen throughout the whole letter, is that if we could give one of those four themes that we've been talking about, if, there was, if we had to distill it into one theme, the theme of this letter would be unity. That is the theme that overarches all of Ephesians. God's great plan, he says in chapter 1, Paul says, is to unite everything in heaven and on earth to himself through Christ. That is the whole point of the letter to the Ephesians, is how now that we're in the second half, how can we live in such a way that we can maintain this unity that God's given us? That's the whole point of the letter. And in the letter about unity, Paul says, expose darkness with light. So I don't know where the people get it, where they're like, we should just hide all this stuff over here. They're not getting it from the Bible, and they're especially not getting it from the 
primary book of the Bible in my mind that's about unity, and that's this book of Ephesians. It explicitly tells us to do the opposite of that. <laughs> tells us to expose it. We can think about this as um, evil thriving in the dark. And what grows in the dark? Mold grows in the dark. Bacteria grows. All this stuff grows in the dark. How do you kill all those things? Light. UV light can sanitize all those things. I know this is another corny example, but here we are. Uh, a lighthouse. I think I have a lighthouse somewhere in there, Jerry. We can think of ourselves as lighthouses in the world around us. Um, lighthouses, uh, the reason why lighthouses exist is because as you get closer to the shore, you tend to get water that's not as deep anymore, right? Like you have boats that go down so far in the water and you get to rocks that are higher than the bottom of the boat and you're going to crash your boat. And when it gets really stormy and, and really foggy or things like that, uh, sometimes even with modern GPS and things, it's difficult to see exactly where you are and, and how to navigate all those things, and especially in the ancient world where they didn't have GPSs. Lighthouses were incredibly important for sailors to know when they were approaching land. And what I love about this metaphor, and again, I know it's overused, but we're just going there today anyway, so please forgive me. But what I love about it is light, when you think about the light in a lighthouse, what does light afford you? Light affords you protection. Light affords you safety. And so we need to think about that in the context here, in light of what Paul's saying here about walking as children of light, that when we live in a certain way, it shows people how to live inside of God's parameters, that that's a good thing for them to see. And they may not view it that way. They might say, hey, you're trying to tell me not to do X or not to do Y, right? That's, that could be the response. But Tim Mackey talks about this in terms of freedom in parameters. And we often think, especially in our modern Western culture, that like this libertarian freedom, I can do whatever I want, you know, like the old, the old Cartman, right? I do what I want, you know, right? That's the best kind of freedom in our society right now. But is that really the best kind of freedom in, that we can consider? No. Any parent with a small child knows that libertarian freedom is not the best kind of freedom. If I didn't restrain my son Isaac, he, you wouldn't see him. Like he, it's, 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 a, it's a running joke that kids just try to kill themselves from the time they start crawling until they get to be like three or four years old. And even then, you have to be like, no, you can't jump on the trampoline on your head or, you know, whatever, like as they get older, right? So anyone who's been a parent or really a kid, probably and remembers well enough, knows that libertarian freedom is not the best freedom. And so what I think about when I think about the lighthouse is I think about freedom and parameters. You don't want to crash on the shore. You don't want to wreck your boat. That's not freedom. Oh, you want, to, you want to drive on the rocks? That's fine. You can go drive on the rocks. Like, see how that works out for you, right? And so that's what the light does. That's what the light functions to do. I was thinking also this morning as I was driving in about uh, in, the, in the Exodus, through the Exodus, um, they had a pillar of cloud and then they had a pillar of light. And multiple times, both of those pillars served not just to guide them, which I think is an important part about the lighthouse metaphor and the light we've been considering this morning, but it also protected them from the Egyptians. It protected them from the enemy. And so I think if we think about that image of a pillar of light, a pillar of light guiding the way and also protecting us from darkness, protecting us from evil, I think it's a powerful way of thinking about it.
I really enjoyed this quote from Arthur Patzia in the Understanding the Bible Commentary. He said, The Christian life is not only the avoidance of evil. It is active participation in the things that expose evil. And that's what this passage is, is showing us this morning. Um, when we think about new Christians, a lot of times their emphasis is on avoiding evil, that first part. And you have to master that if you want to get to that second piece. You have to learn to avoid evil if you want to learn how to expose it. Otherwise, you'll just be showing evil with what you're doing, and then that's not a good witness either. I want to close by looking again at Ephesians 5.14, the second part, and it says, Therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. There are two times in the book of Ephesians where Paul says, Therefore it says. And a couple weeks ago I said those are the only two Old Testament quotes. And, um, you know, there's a reason why we have uh, fact checkers in the world today, and uh, our brother Dave shined the light on my mistake. So uh, I consider these two because these are the two where Paul said, therefore it says in my ESV Bible. I don't know if you can see it, but it has this little indented way of looking at it. These are the only two that had this little special indented thing, and so I thought I'd done my due diligence. And it turns out there's two other Old Testament quotes in chapter 6 that I didn't get to, and... There's a couple strong allusions that Jerry, were in Jerry's passages last week. So I think there's something like four quotes and maybe two strong allusions in the letter to the Ephesians. So thanks, Dave, for fact-checking and shining the light on my mistake. I appreciate that, brother. That's why you need people like Dave around you to sharpen you up. But I do want to point out something that's cool about this. Uh, this is um, the awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. This is like a somewhat Old Testament quote. There's no section of Scripture that actually says this. Uh, he's lifting language from Isaiah 26, 19, and Isaiah 60, verse 1. And um, the way that I view this is that this is like a short poem uh, that Paul's quoting that probably wasn't used in the first century church. That's why he can just sort of quote it and not be bothered by the fact that it's not a literal Old Testament quote. And so it, the, the way that a lot of the commentaries I read said that it's a short poem that's an invitation for those who are sleeping or spiritually dead to get up, to become spiritually awake, so that the light of Christ can shine upon them. And so this is talking about outsiders coming into the church, people that you go out in the world, you're shining your light, you're attracting people around you. They come, they see the light, they're like, oh man, we want this. Well, then what you've done is you've taken a sleeper and you've raised them up from the dead. And the light of Christ then can shine on them. It's a beautiful image, isn't it? And so this is the importance of following Jesus. This is the importance of shining a light into the darkness around us. So what does this mean for our lives? Let's think through the four layers of interpretation. Uh, we've looked a little bit about what the text meant to them. How would they have applied it? Well, in the original context, I think they would have understood that they needed to emulate their father and their Lord in the dark world that was around them. And, you know, we tend to think that we have evil quartered, uh, cornered in modern times that, you know, like we are more evil than they were. Uh, but they were really good at evil too. <laughs> I can tell you they were, if you just read uh, any his history on, on the Greco-Roman period of time, like there was, I mean, tons of people were slaves in that period of time, and there was all sorts of different types of slavery. And I'm just going to say it. He addresses those kinds of things here in the context. I'll let you connect the dots there. Um, they were incredibly good at evil. And when you think about religious life, pagan religious life, we know that in Corinth, especially, but in other religions of the time, 
that many temples would have included sexual immorality as part of their worship of the pagan god. So when Paul's telling them, now you're not going to act like Gentiles anymore, that would have included, for some of them, their old form of worship would have been sexually, sexual immorality and things like that. So, you know, they, have to, they had to deal with that kind of evil coming from an evil way of worshiping to the right way of worshiping. So maybe think about that next time you think they're like, we're so evil and they were so like, they didn't have as much going on as we did. They had a lot going on in the evil world. But what does this text mean to us now? Uh, just as we reflected last week on the new life that is available in Christ in that kingdom living, we have seen this week the importance of following Jesus. The world around us, it is dark too. And it is our responsibility to show people what the kingdom of God will look like by walking in love and walking as children of light. There are people around us, and here I'm speaking in the city of Louisville, but maybe you're watching online, your city is different. But no matter where we are, whatever city we're in, there are people around us who are sleeping spiritually, who are dead spiritually. And so it's up to us to shine this beacon of hope, this beacon of truth, of righteousness and goodness into the dark world that's around us. And I want to agree with Arthur Pazia. It's not enough for us to personally avoid evil in our own lives. It's the first step. It's the first step. We must continue in our walk with Christ to actively participate in things that expose the evil around us. And so for me, that's the calling that we've been called to. We are called to avoid the things that Paul tells us to avoid here in this passage. But we're also Take, to take that next step to expose the works of darkness around us. That's a high calling. It's a high view of what we can do with God's help, with our Lord Jesus' help, and with the help of the community around us to encourage us. So let's pray. Father, we're so thankful that you have made us your children, that we can walk as beloved children, that we can imitate you in your generosity and in your goodness. Father, we're thankful that we can look at the example of your son, Jesus, and that we can uh, walk in love just as he did in the way that he sacrificed himself for us, that we can sacrifice ourselves for others. And God, I'm thankful today and every day that that doesn't mean getting up on a cross. We're thankful that he did that for us and that we don't have to do that. But we do, Father, help us to live up to this calling, to be, live self-sacrificially to the people around us, to be loving even to our enemies, to the people that persecute us. Father, help us to grow beyond avoiding evil in our own lives, although that is super important. God, help us to, to, to get past the evil that we deal with, but also help us move forward into exposing the darkness around us. Help us to be beacons of light and hope in our communities, whether that's here in Louisville or around the world. Help us to be the kind of people that others look to and see our great Lord, your Son, and see you, Father. So we thank you for your help in doing that. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to the Compass Christian Church Weekly Sermon Podcast. For more information on how we are striving to follow Jesus together here in Louisville, Kentucky, check out our website, compasslu.org, where you can subscribe to our newsletter and view additional resources.